Welcome to Episode 9 of Murder Rewrite. I'm your host, Carol Goodman-Kaufman. On this podcast, I talk with crime writers whose short stories and novels run the gamut from cozies to domestic thrillers. We'll learn from them about their craft, their process, and the business of writing. I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, James Brewer. Jim has authored five novels in the critically acclaimed Macy Baldridge Luke Williamson mystery series, and today, April 10th, the first book in his new series, Blood on the Cross Ties, drops. Jim's resume is so long and so varied that I'd rather not read a list of his amazing achievements. I think I'm just going to ask about them as we proceed in the conversation. But first, I want to say congratulations, Jim, on your new book. So welcome to Murder We Write, Jim. Thanks so much for joining me today. Let's jump right into the first question. Both of your mystery series take place in the late 19th century. What attracts you to this time period? Well, Carol, thank you for having me on your podcast. The late 19th century is particularly interesting because it holds a lot of parallels between our current time. Uh, After the Civil War, people were coming out of that very terrible experience and trying to digest what it all meant. Our nation today is in a period of time where we've been in one of the longest protracted wars in our history. Uh, At a time of great uh, new technological development in the late 19th century, the telephone was coming along, uh, electric lights. um, We were right on the cusp of having automobiles, and what a rich and interesting time to, to write about. Uh, there were diseases that were running around like yellow fever and other things, and they didn't know where they came from, and they didn't know how to stop them, and it terrorized people. That kind of sounds a little familiar, doesn't it, from about the year 2020? All the parallels are great. So that's one of the reasons that I very much enjoy this time frame, because some of the issues that people were dealing with in the 1880s and 1890s and, and the latter part of that century are the same issues that we face today. The country was fully divided at that time. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was viewpoint against viewpoint, and, and of course the aftermath of the war and the, the grudges that were still being held then and the attempts by the government to find ways to put the country back together after the schism of the Civil War. Uh, so those are some of the reasons that, that I believe that this is an exciting period. I like to write about it because normally Everybody that writes about this period of time tends to write a Western. Not everybody, but most. Most things you find in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s happened out West. But as I shared with the editor of Roundup Magazine recently, I said, you know, Mr. Boggs, everything interesting didn't happen West of the Mississippi. We had a very, very rich culture of adventure and intrigue and murder and mystery going on in the Eastern part of the United States. So that's why I wrote the Steamboat series set in the 1870s, the Macy Baldrige Luke Williamson series. And that's why I decided I would move that time period a little further along and create my new Choctaw Parker mystery adventure series. Jim, you had a long career as a cavalry officer in the United States Army. Do you use any of that background to inform your stories? That's a great question. Yes, I am. Uh, have spent a number of years in the military, 30 altogether between active duty and uh, working as a government civilian. I was chief of live training for the last 12 years of my Army career after I retired from active duty. 
yes, I use my experience and my background in the military to, to try and inform uh, in good historical terms uh, how the, the soldiers acted during the period of time and what their influences were and what their priorities were in that period after the Civil War and leading up to the turn of the century. Uh, that's very important to, to get that right historically. Uh, I had the chance to be the editor of Armor Magazine for three years uh, before I retired from the Army. And in that time, that was the oldest continuously published uh, military magazine in the world at the time. And uh, I still had books in there on cavalry drills from the 1870s and 80s. And I would, in my spare time, I would read about how those were conducted in those days and, and uh, wrote a few stories and did a few things based upon my understanding of that. So I had access to some great uh, primary source material. That was a wonderful, wonderful time of learning for me. I, uh, I also try to properly reflect the soldier's attitude, and there's a character in Blood and, Blood and Lacrosse Ties that's um, yeah, he's, he's, he's pretty hardcore, as we would say in the military, but not hardcore in a good way, uh, hardcore in a very divisive and, and sad way in many cases. And you see that. You see people uh, in the military who've been through, through so much that they're, they're hardened, uh, their hearts are hardened to borrow, borrow a term from uh, from Christian thought, and uh, they treat people in ways that maybe they ought not. They're not reflective of most soldiers, but they were reflective of some at the time, and uh, I try to use that material in Blood on the Cross Ties to, to show what it was like at that time. Well, that answers what would have been my next question about Captain Stratton, a pretty hardcore soldier himself with a particularly biased way of looking at things. Did you set out initially to address racism and discrimination when writing the book? And what brought you to choose Jimmy Lee Choctaw Parker as your detective? I never set out to write a book with a social agenda. What I do is my best to tell the story uh, the way it existed at the time. And unfortunately, uh, at the time, there was a great deal of uh, bitterness and, and uh, mistreatment of people of various races, ranging anywhere from, from the uh, Native Americans, the American Indians, the, uh, the, the black folks in the South, uh, the Irish in inner city in the Northeast. A lot of people suffered. I don't, I don't set out to tell a particular, make a particular social comment. However, if you just tell the truth, as we say in my family, the truth only hurts if it should. And so we tell the truth about how things were and how people acted. Uh, now, Jimmy Lee Choctaw Parker, I came up with an idea about 20 years ago about a, after watching the movie The Young Guns, I thought, well, why don't we come up with a, a story called The Old Guns? And uh, two or three of us had been to the range and dressed in our uh, long coats with our 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 period revolver has been shooting at the range one day and, and someone snapped a picture of us and there the three of us old guys are standing there. I thought, how about a, a book or a series about the old guns? And I decided that one of the characters in that would be a half uh, Choctaw and half white uh, individual uh, as one of those three characters. But you know, I got busy writing a couple of nonfiction books and it took all my time up and I never did the story called Old Guns. But I never forgot the character of Jimmy Lee uh, Choctaw Parker. Uh, 
The name Jimmy Lee comes from a gentleman when I was about four years old that lived across the street to me, from me in a small northwest Tennessee town called Tiptonville. And uh, his name was Jimmy Lee. And he was part Cherokee. And uh, his wife, Evera, cared for me when my mother was working as a telephone operator during the day. And so I never forgot Jimmy Lee. He, he was quite an interesting man. So I remembered the, that first name and thought I would apply it in the story. Uh, and it's uh, my, I have a grandson by the name of Parker, but that was strictly a matter of coincidence, not a matter of, of choice. Well, it's obvious you do a lot of research, Jim, in order to give authenticity to your work. Um, is all the research done through books at libraries, or do you travel to different places to get a feel for the settings? Traveling to different places to get a feel for the setting is the best part of research and writing a, a historical novel. I just love going to the locations. In fact, that's very important. You see, if I tell you that the main character walked from the Argyle rail stop two miles up the track to figure out where the train robbery took place is because I was actually in Argyle walking up that train track to see how long it took, what it felt like with the breeze blowing at the time of day that I'm going to describe it in the story. And as, and usually the t as close as I can to the time of year. I like that kind of authenticity in work. So uh, I know what it feels like and when the sun, which direction the sun is coming up and is it on my face or is it on my back? And I describe that in the text. So yes, I love that. That's very important. The research clearly isn't just books and library research or internet searching. Some of the best information I get is talking to local historians. I love nothing better than to find the head man or woman in a historical society, contact them, uh, make a date to meet with them, uh, and go and sit down and spend a little time in the historical society talking about the story that I want to write and trying to verify that my understanding of the history in a certain area is correct. Or sometimes they'll hop in the truck with me and we'll go driving out to the site uh, that I want to use as a setting in my story. Uh, if I've got a, a, a situation where I want someone to uh, to, to um, travel a certain distance, I like to know how long it takes to get there and then interpolate that to how long it would take to get there by horseback or on foot if the person were walking. That I see, I think that adds, the, the word I would use would be verisimilitude, which is a nice 25-cent vocabulary word, but it means... Um, it. It's, it adds reality, and it helps to immerse the reader. There's nothing worse than, than reading a historical novel and seeing something in there that isn't historically accurate or is an anachronism, because what it tends to do, it tends to shock the reader back to the current. And that's the last thing as a historical mystery novelist that I want, is the reader shocked back to the current time. I want that reader immersed in the time I'm writing about, and I want them to stay right there with it till they lay that book down and go fix a cup of coffee. So, yeah, I like, love to talk to, to local experts, um, experts in the field. If I, if I feature a balloon, hot air balloon in a story, then I'm going to talk to somebody who flies hot air balloons. That's an important part of what I do. Yeah, I absolutely love the research part of writing but I can end up going down rabbit holes if I'm not careful. 
Uh, I've actually managed to while away an entire afternoon looking at 19th century maps for a story I'm working on now. But let's talk about your writing process. Do you write every day? Do you aim for a certain number of words when you do? Um, Do you have a room of your own? To quote Virginia Woolf. No, I don't write every day. I don't put myself on that tight a schedule. Um, I try to accomplish something every week. Uh, It just depends on my workload because I'm still teaching as an adjunct faculty member a couple of days a week, so I've got paper grading going on and other things like that. But I don't try to put myself in a position where I'm under a deadline for that. Uh, Like today, I I had some administrative work to do, uh, and I found about 45 minutes because an idea came to me at 4 o'clock in the morning this morning or something I wanted to add to book three in the series. So I kept that in the back of my mind all morning. And when I got a chance today, I spent about 30, 45 minutes uh, configuring where I wanted to put it and writing a note to myself and writing a short scene that included it. So I'll do that on, on an as-needed basis. Uh, I do set up a, a schedule often during the week and say, okay, I have some writing time on Wednesday morning or I have writing time on uh, Friday afternoon or something like that. Uh, So I believe in in, in using a schedule, but not holding so fast to it that I feel pressured by it. Uh, I think it's as important in the days you don't write as it is the days you write to let ideas percolate. Uh, A lot of times I I percolate those ideas or marinate those ideas when I'm walking my dogs around the block. I'll have an idea for a scene or something and I'll kind of play that scene out in my mind as I'm making a two or three block walk with my dogs. It's very relaxing, uh, and uh, I, I can always seem to come back and jot down a note or two. I also believe in what I call the Hawthornian effect, and that is where one um, uses the time one has in that half-awake, half-asleep state when the mind is clear to get new ideas and express those ideas. And oftentimes I'll get up at 5 o'clock in the morning if something wakes me up and I'll spend 30, 40 minutes making notes and go back to bed. That's part of my process as well. Jim, in my intro, I referred to your very rich resume. And one of the items on it that caught my eye was your involvement in the martial arts, various forms of martial arts, including as an instructor. Now, my understanding is that martial arts didn't even come to America until after World War II. So, do you anticipate setting a future series in that time period? The only correction I would make to what you said is that the Asian martial arts, karate, uh, judo, kung fu, uh, didn't come to the U.S. until early 1900s in the form of judo, and then the others began to come into the country. Uh, They really didn't get popularized in the U.S. until the 1950s and into the 60s and in the present day. But you have to keep in mind that martial art uh, isn't limited to just what happened in Asia because uh, there were martial arts all over the world. Uh, Scottish warriors had a martial art. Uh, Russian uh, sambo fighters had a martial art. Uh, Native Americans had a martial art. Now, it wasn't a systematized martial art like you find in uh, Shurinji-ru or some of these uh, variations of Okinawan karate and things. But it was still a martial art. They had a certain way they fought and protected themselves. Uh, Martial arts uh, is a warrior art. 
and they've been warriors since the beginning of time. Now, to your specific question of what I'm going to do in the future on this, I have in mind a story called Switchboard, which would be set in about 1947, and it would feature a former uh, army soldier who had been a prisoner of war in China, and uh, he's recovering from PTSD after the war. He's been treated in a local asylum, and he's living on a lake in northwest Tennessee, and uh, he meets a woman who's a switchboard operator there. So it's it's a story of how this man is recovering from what happened to him in the war and the people he meets and uh, really rich in that post-war time period. I'm thinking that he will be uh, involved in a martial art that he was forced to learn while in captivity in China. Uh, and that will play heavily in this series. But I've got to make that decision whether I'm going to do that series next or whether I'm going to do one that I started a number of years ago called uh, DeSoto's Gold or whether I'm going to maybe do another book in the Choctaw Parker series or whether I'm going to revise and complete my Southern romance entitled Dancing, which is a Hardware owner in northwest Mississippi falls in love with his ballroom dance teacher in Memphis, set in the 1980s. So those are some of my ideas, and I've just got to decide when I finish the third book in the Choctaw Parker series, which one I'm going to launch out on next. Oh my gosh, my head is spinning, Jim. I don't know how you manage to juggle all these different projects and keep them straight. But I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago. You referred to book three in the Choctaw Parker series. Now, book one just came out. So can you give us a hint as to what we might see coming up? In the Choctaw Parker Mystery Adventure series, the main character, Jimmy Lee Choctaw Parker, works for the three great railroad barons of Florida. Book one, he works with William Chipley, who developed the railroad from Pensacola to Tallahassee and opened up the panhandle. In the book two, Choctaw Parker works for Henry Flagler of the infamous Flagler University and the Flagler Railroad System. Uh, and that story is set in St. Augustine and Palatka, Florida. And in book three, the one I mentioned earlier, Choctaw Parker works for Henry Plant, the third great railroad baron of Florida, who built his railroad empire, the Plant System, down the central part of Florida and along the west coast. So that's how the story plays out across three volumes. And uh, Parker's skills uh, become very in important in these, uh, these great railroad tycoons uh, managing the challenges of the day because this was the period of time when Florida was being opened up to, to tourism and travel. Uh, Northerners would come down uh, during the winter, and in, in Book 1, uh, Murder in, uh, at the Florida First Florida Chautauqua, that's where the first one was held, and many visitors came down, and the threat to the success of that is what causes William Chipley to hire Jimmy Lee Parker. In Book 2, 
Henry Flagler is building his railroad and his brand new Ponce de Leon Hotel, which was the jewel of the time in terms of architecture for hotels. And that story revolves around individuals who don't necessarily share Henry Flagler's vision for expansion into Florida. And of course, in book three, well, book three, there's a murder on the Peace River. And that deals with uh, Henry Plant attempt to uh, to buy the railroad leading from Lakeland all the way down to Port Charlotte and uh, expand his railroad west uh, uh, through Tampa. So that's the basis of the three stories or the three books in this series. I'm enjoying doing them all. I travel to all these locations. Uh, as I shared with you earlier, I always try to visit the spots and learn what I can and meet local historians and it's just been a wonderful time in working on developing this series. Well, Jim, not only do you spin a good yarn, you do so much research that you really bolster your story. I, We have learned so much from you today. I had known about Flagler the Railroad Baron, but not about Shipley and Plant, and I had no idea that there really was a Chautauqua in Florida back in the late 1800s. Thank you for joining me today and for sharing your writing life with us. I am sure our listeners will enjoy this episode. And to my listeners, thank you for tuning in. Please join me next time for episode 10 of Murder We Write. It was my pleasure to be part of your podcast. Uh, my encouragement to all those who are readers and all those who are writers to keep going strong. Uh, we need folks like you out there to make this a, a worthwhile effort on all our parts. My best to you. Short Cast Club.